welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today is episode number 18. In this episode, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Steve Borowitz from the University of Virginia School of Medicine, Department of Pediatric Gastroenterology and Nutrition. Today, Dr. Borowitz and I are going to take a deeper dive into the world of constipation as well as the microbiome and cow milk protein intolerance. He is an expert in the field of constipation as well as a deep thinker in all things gastroenterology and frankly, all things human pediatric related. So let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Borowitz. He completed his undergraduate degree at Tulane University in New Orleans before attending Rush University Medical College in Chicago. After medical school, Dr. Borowitz went on to Vanderbilt University to complete his fellowship training in pediatric gastroenterology and nutrition. He subsequently went to the University of South Alabama for a short stint before heading to the University of Virginia to be part of the Pediatric Gastroenterology Nutrition Program, for which he still remains a clinical professor. When I arrived at the University of Virginia to begin my internship and residency there, it was very clear early on when I met Dr. Borowitz that he had a thirst for knowledge and was one of the best teachers in the university program. While his focus was primarily on pediatric gastroenterologic diseases, Dr. Borowitz was very much a jack-of-all-trades, being a thinker and wanting to be involved in all of the interesting cases of the day during my pediatric internship and residency. Dr. Borowitz is the kind of teacher that has a gravitational pull. He really just exemplifies what it's like to want to learn. He has a voracious desire to understand the science behind why or how things are happening. And that really uh, left a mark on me throughout my training of uh, pediatrics, that this is somebody I want to learn from, emulate, and and attempt to, to find the same desire to see pediatrics through this beautiful lens of the, of the scientific analysis. I will admit that I'm quite biased when it comes to Dr. Borowitz, as he is one of the uh, teachers that I hold in the highest esteem throughout my uh, educational career in medicine. And I think that's okay. So today, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Stephen Borowitz regarding the world of constipation, cow milk protein intolerance, and the microbiome. Well, good morning, Steve Borowitz. I am so grateful to have you on the show to sit and talk about all the beauties of the gastrointestinal tract. You are the premier gastroenterologist in the country as far as I'm concerned, and I'm just grateful to have you here. Thank you, Chris. It's a pleasure. Well, it is my pleasure. You can't even imagine. But let's get started here. So normally I like to read a piece of information I find in the literature as a segue into this. But in all honesty, I looked and looked and looked and find nothing great on constipation and GI. So I said, you know what, I'm not doing it. I'm just going to turn you loose just to start it this time. So, you know, I, I know you and I have talked about this, that we're seeing more constipation or maybe we're just seeing the same we had but we're just noticing it more or whatever is going on, but let's go into that. So why are we seeing the volumes of constipation now? And, and what are the pathophysiologic mechanisms that are underpinning why we're seeing this? Yeah, so as you and I talked about briefly, I'm not sure that the incidence or the prevalence has really risen. I think, I think it's always been there. If you go back into the archeologic record, 
that you know there there um, there's evidence that in Egypt and other places people were given enemas to little babies. So I don't think this is a new phenomenon, although the incidence may be rising. And some of that may relate to the push to breastfeed and delayed in introduction of solids and um, lack of a lot of grandmothers around who have a bunch of common sense that we've lost. Um, but, but in the overwhelming majority of kids with constipation, the trigger is pain. Um, that's almost always the case. So, so people get worried about how often a kid poops or the character of the poop. And I'm more focused on, does it hurt to poop? Because if it hurts every time the child defecates, that's never normal, even if the kid's going every day. And, and so people take for granted the process of defecating, but it's actually complicated. I say this to parents all the time, you know, that's why we don't expect kids to be toilet trained till they're two or three, depending on the culture and expectations. So they've got to coordinate the process. So it's sort of simplistic three, three parts. First is urge. So normally when you defecate, you empty. So that means most of the time the rectum is empty. And so when stool comes down into the rectum, that gives you the urge to go. And then once you get the urge to go, if you're toilet trained, you wait till you get to the bathroom. If you're not toilet trained, usually you poop right away. So it's the little babies typically. And so to poop, you take a deep breath, push down with your diaphragms, tighten lower abdominal muscles, the intrinsic muscles of the colon contract. So you're pushing down, but while you're pushing down, you have to relax the pelvic floor to create a funnel. So pushing while relaxing, we're not thinking about that. If we thought about it, we wouldn't be able to do it. Right. Um, so it's all reflexive. And then you got to relax the sphincter. Um, so once it starts hurting, as a pain avoidance strategy, people tend to tense the pelvic floor in the sphincter because it's painful. So you have a diaper rash or a sword down at your bottom or a fissure or a big, large, hard stool, and you have pain, and then you start tensing the pelvic floor and sphincter instead of relaxing them, which makes the process very inefficient. And if if those if that tensing is strong enough, then basically what the kid has to do, or the adult for that matter, is strain hard enough to force open the pelvic floor and sphincter, which are painful. And so you reinforce this pain, quote, withholding, close quote, cycle, and it goes round and round and round. And I quote one of our neurology residents, abnormal motor behaviors once learned are very hard to unlearn. So it becomes habitual. So even once the pain has gone away, the kid's still using their muscles in the wrong way. So this is this is one of those cases where you know an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. The longer the pain persists, the harder it is to undo the problem. So as soon as the kid starts having pain, you need to intervene. And I, I do wonder whether part of the problem with all this is that with the push to breastfeed exclusively for an extended period of time, parents are nervous to give prune juice or other types of stool softeners very early in the process. And so by the time we intervene, the kid's been doing this for a long time. And even though we may get the pain to go away, they're still gonna use that behavior. Um, and and you know, one of the problems with all this is you can explain this to a five-year-old or a six-year-old, but you can't explain it to a toddler. So once it's hurting, you have to get the stool really, really soft so that when they finally do defecate, it's not painful. And you need to do that for many months until the behavior gets extinguished. So I think part of the perpetuation is people look for an instant fix. They give a stool softener or do something for a few days, things seem better, then they stop, the pain comes back and so you go round and round and round and round. Yeah, so you know, I, when I think about that whole cycle of 
pain in, inducing holding behavior, holding behavior, inducing harder stools because the water's getting sucked out by the colon, which then you finally defecate, it hurts again. Right. That, that loop effect is what needs to be broken. And I remember a handout that you used to have that I still have and still use, the acquired megacolon handout. And it sort of goes through this in, 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 in simple terms. And it, and it lays out the framework of why it takes that amount of time. And because the colon's so dilated, it's not gonna function, peristalsis as well. And then that behavior of holding is, is going to be reinforced if you don't stay on the laxative for quite a while because the stools will sit there longer than they should and reharden again. So knowing all of that and knowing it takes three to six months to get back on track, which is what we tell every parent, but you, as you just aptly stated, a lot of parents just give up on it very quickly. What are the, the other major interventions outside of prune juice? Because in our clinic, we have such a high volume of kids that seem to be milk protein intolerant, which, which a lot of them get constipated in their second phase of the milk protein intolerance after the loose green stools sort of disappear. You know, we, we tend to put a lot of these children on a, on a dairy-free and then a uh, higher fiber diet for a while. And then if they do well on that, they can reintroduce cheese and other things and see what happens to the caliber of the stool. What do, what do you guys do up there at UVA um, when you see these patients from a dietary perspective? Yeah, so, for, you know, so the, the, the data that, that constipation is caused by milk protein sensitivity is weak at best. There, there are a couple of old studies, out of, mostly out of Italy, that describe kids with chronic anal fissures. Um, and, and, and that group of kids, until you take, it's usually dairy, dairy out of their diet, things don't get better. Uh, subsequent studies haven't really been able to confirm that finding. And again, I think in the end, it's probably pain that's the trigger in almost all cases. So if the kid has a little bit of diarrhea and a diaper rash that may be milk protein induced, even, even once that goes away, they've already established this pain withholding behavior and abnormal motor behaviors. In, ter in terms of diet, so, you know, my personal bias is that early introduction of solid foods is a really good thing. Um, so I, I, you know, for a while, the AAP was very slow and said six months exclusive breastfeeding. The Europeans, and it's still actually in the position statements, um, Europeans um, moved much earlier than us and said four months. If you really review the data, I think you can start earlier than that. Um, if, if you sort of think about the things you've talked about with the microbiome, as soon as you start adding solid foods into the diet, the microbiome changes and they start having a bunch of fiber fermenters in their GI tract. And there are a bunch of benefits to early introduction of solids in my mind, but one is the change in microbiome. So the, so the fiber fermenters, you know, bacteroides and all sorts of other organisms produce it's the byproduct of their fermentation. They produce a bunch of you know, short chain fatty acids like butyrate, which is actually anti-inflammatory and probably tolerogenic. Um, so you're tilting, you're tilting the, the gut flora to a tolerogenic circumstance, which is really what the gut should be doing in the first year of life anyway. Um, and so I think in that circumstance, obviously the flora also serves to keep and the, and the fiber serves to keep water in the bowel because you know by definition, fiber is undigestible carbohydrate which means that you keep water in the bowel because you can't absorb the sugars. Um, so I'm a big believer of solids at three months, although I know that goes against the Academy's recommendations. I use it a lot in kids, and obviously I'm a gastroenterologist, so I'm seeing a selected population, the kids with colic, the kids with reflux, the kids with constipation. I don't force the families to do this, but I recommend it. Um, and then I, they need some sort of osmotic agent to keep their stool soft, whether that's milk and magnesia, where magnesium is the osmotic agent, or Miralax, where polyethylene glycol is the osmotic agent. 
or some sort of fiber containing food. And you know, whether it's prune juice or some other small amount of juice or prunes or apples or something like that. I, I think those are all beneficial things. But yeah, then, I I, you know, then the key is we talked about is persistence. So, right. so what I tell families, little kids is that, is that, is that they, they should stay on whatever they're doing to keep the kid pooping without pain. And when you know it's not pain is when they don't know the kid poops until they smell it. Because if it's a big production, it means the kid's not relaxing their pelvic floor sphincter. Um, and so then do that for a minimum of two to three months after the pain has completely gone away. And once all those behaviors have been extinguished, then it's reasonable to back off. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think we, we've gone back and forth with the whole introduction of food based on allergy too, because I know the LEAP yeah. study and some of these other studies yeah. sort of came out and said, well, you know, four to six months. So it was sort of erring on the side of it seemed like it, to become tolerogenic to a food, it, it, the clinical window seemed to be the six to 12 month time frame. And then you say, okay, well, when did these kids push food out with their tongue yeah. versus take it in with their tongue? So some of these yeah. evolutionary things sort of pushed us in this, maybe six months makes the most sense. But, you know, to your point, if the fibers are driving the microbiome to produce the, the short chain fatty acids that are helping the enterocytes function, which is preventing, you know, potential intestinal permeability and other things down the road that are problematical, that maybe early introduction makes more sense. And I hadn't thought about it from the constipation perspective. So that's interesting. Yeah. And, and so, so, you know, in every pre-industrial culture that's been looked at, Solids are fed somewhere between two and three months of age. Now, a lot of those are like birds. The mom, you know, if the, kid, if the mom's out doing agricultural work, she chews on this stuff, takes it out of her mouth and puts it in the baby's mouth. And it's usually a starch, but they go fairly quickly. There's a fair amount of evidence that, you know, you know, breast milk's really sweet. Babies have a sweet tooth. Right. And, and, um, and there's lots of data to support that. There's all sorts of cool stuff about early introduction of solids. I mean, I think the, if you look at the available data, the window of tolerance is probably somewhere between three and six months and then begins to close. Um, and so that's the period of peak time when you should be exposing kids. And there's all these cool studies about exposure to taste independent of the immunologic stuff. So there's an amazing, there are a couple of amazing studies um, out of Europe, one where they took, um, this was in, in um, somewhere in the Alsace, I think, where on the, if I remember right, there's a German side and a French side, right. and the French people tend to eat a bunch of anise. That's part of their diet, and the Germans don't. Um, so moms eat a bunch of anise during pregnancy, and the German people don't. And so they took the babies when they were born, and they took a bunch of anise, and they put it in front of the baby. And the French babies started smacking their lips and turned to start nursing when they got the anise in front of their nose. And the babies from Germany who didn't get any anise during pregnancy turned away. So there's this sort of early programming about taste that mom exposes the baby to. There's, there's another study out of Italy where they took a bunch of women who are undergoing elective amniocentesis and they took half of them. They said, you got to eat a bunch of garlic right before we do the amniocentesis. And then the other half, they didn't give them the garlic. And then they sampled the fluid and they gave, and they, they blinded a bunch of people and they put the fluid in front of them and said, can you smell garlic? And they could easily tell the women who'd eaten a bunch of garlic. So there's a bunch of stuff getting into the amniotic fluid that the baby tastes that triggers the baby's taste after birth. Then there's another amazing study out of um, Ireland. It was before the food revolution there. So they didn't use much garlic in their cooking. And they randomized half of the women to eat a bunch of garlic during the last trimester. And then a bunch they didn't. And then they followed those kids out for like 10 years. 
And at age eight, they brought a bunch of the kids back and they cooked this meal. Um, and they had two types of mashed potatoes, one, one with a bunch of garlic and one without any garlic. And they let the kids eat whatever they wanted. And the kids whose moms had had a bunch of garlic during the third trimester ate like twice as much of the garlic mashed potatoes as the kids who didn't. So there's this pre-programming early that probably influences taste later. And so diversity of exposure early in life probably influences all this stuff down the road. So independent of the potential immunologic benefits of decreasing the risk of allergies and changing the gut flora, it also decreases the risk of picky eating and food refusal and a bunch of other stuff. Which is exactly where I was going next because I had Dr. Quinn on the show a couple of weeks ago and she's an anthropologist looking at breastfeeding specifically. And it was very clear from her work that a lot of the pre-programming stuff was going through the breast milk eating. Right. And so, so to your point, the monotonic diet structure of most, or I can't say most, but a lot of my patients' mothers is, is part of the problem that the kids are not coming out and they're being fed the same diet predominantly because mom's probably eating that too. But even when mom tries to challenge away from it, she wasn't exposed to this while pregnant or during breastfeeding or whatever. And so the kid is less likely to have that palatability set up epigenetically or whatever the process is for the programming. So yeah, I think that's a secondary piece because a lot of the foods these kids are eating are low in fiber. Right, right, where all the things you're talking about in general, these ancestral foods are much higher in fiber. I mean, I was reading some articles between 50 to 125 grams a day of fiber was the norm for ancestral diets, and we're sitting around 10 to 15 now. I mean, geez. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I guess the, it's hard to know how much is the right amount, um, because you know, if you if you sort of look at, uh, at, at you know, we're the only species that feed, that feeds complementary foods, right? So, so. No, no other species do this. So we have this sort of weaning food. And, and the hypothesis as to why we do that is, is so that we can, well, shortens the duration between pregnancies because other species don't deliver another baby until the baby is fully weaned. And so we're unique in that regard is that our moms can have multiple infants that, that are still in the weaning process. So part of that is you gotta give them some complementary foods because otherwise the mom couldn't do this. Um, but, but so, and then the other part is, is that we need a lot more energy because our brains are so big and they grow so fast. So, so if you ate the same fiber rich diet that an ape eats, a human would have to chew for about 18 hours a day. Right. So, so cooking and weaning foods are one of the ways that we've managed to do all the other things that we do from an evolutionary perspective. So, so I, I think the right amount is unclear, but clearly some of this is we're not eating the right stuff. Um, and then, and then people give up too fast. I mean, and part of this, I think, is you know, is the change in our culture. So we ain't got grandmas around who have a lot of common sense and a lot of experience. Um, and so there's studies showing that you know, if if you randomly give babies different foods every day, they'll they'll ultimately eat a whole bunch of different foods. So instead of giving them sweet potatoes every day, one day you give them sweet potatoes, the next day you give them green beans, the next day you give them squash, whatever the different foods are. And if you look at what those kids eat at three or four months of age or six months of age, it's much more diverse. You have to give them multiple tastes over time and not give up too quickly. Yeah, and I think fundamentally that's been a change in industrialized cultures because we have yeah. so much access to the same food on a daily basis. Again, I was talking to Dr. Agard and Dr. Quinn about this in the past, looking at you know, maternal diets are regional for some expect, right. like uh, Dr. Quinn's work in the, in the Nepalese area, showing that these folks eat this very restricted but 
seasonal diet. And that in that diet actually induced higher breast milk fat stores because the altitude in the cold to give the baby more access to brown fat, which was thermogenic, which helped them. And so evolutionarily we're adaptable as humans. So you know, uh, I think up, that up to a point. <laughs> well, so, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so if you, so if you look at influences of diet on breast milk, it, other than some of the micronutrients and taste of extremes, it doesn't change much. So, so if right. you sort of think evol evolutionarily, you know, when we lived on the savanna, you know, we killed a mammoth every eight months or six months. And so we had to survive on, on over those six to eight months on the protein of that one mammoth. So there's, there's very little protein in breast milk. And no matter how much protein mom eats, the amount of protein in breast milk doesn't change. Right. And the, and the fat content doesn't really change. The constituents change, but the fat content doesn't really change. Right, right. And so that's sort so, of pre-programmed. Right. So my, my point, I guess I, I was misstating it, but yeah. my point was being that the very diets that mothers have ultimately ends up with a breast milk that is relatively similar and adaptable to the child in the environment right. they live in, right? But, right. you know, there are some, you know, she's proving that there are some changes at the high altitudes for increased, uh, the delivery makes the child's fat content a little bit stronger in the body. But again, I think that the bigger point here is that ancestral diets were varied, but they still were functional. I think the difference now is that we have this highly refined, highly processed, monotonic style American industrialized food system that is, to me, is driving more of the problems, like you're saying, to the picky eating, to the low fiber, to the, you know, the getting the insulin resistance world now with the, the fat sugar coupled all together. This is sort of a, a, a big mess. Well, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I'm not sure we know. I mean, if it were simple, we would have solved it by now. So I, th I think it's complicated, but I do think that a lot of the refined sugar, particularly the high fructose corn syrup, which bypasses a lot of the regulatory components is part of the issue. But, but there, are lot, there are lots of variables here, needless to say. Oh yeah, and I think the beauty of medicine right now is that the science is getting better and better. We're learning closer and closer to the answers, but I, I agree with you. I think it's gonna take time to still ferret out all the answers. So, so while, we're, while we're sort of segueing around on this topic, let's go, let's just talk about, so, so parents get some news to use. Like what's the Steve Borowitz plan for constipation, right? Like if you have a patient sitting in your office right now, and, and this kid's been intermittently constipated with pain for six months. Just do the, the yeah. five minute spiel so that parents listening to this go, okay, I've got the best gastroenterologist in the country telling me what to do. I don't even need to go see anyone else. All right, well, I'm being set up here, but, but so they're <laughs> coming to my office. They're, they're coming to my office. So usually the stuff that they have already done um, has failed. And so I usually tell families that once the, the behavior of the pain and the behavior of withholding has been well-established, it's very rare for you to be able to fix this problem with diet alone. Once you get the kid better, diet can help the kid stay better, but usually you need to do something aggressive to break the cycle. So I usually start with, you know, particularly if the kid's been passing big stools or there's an ev evidence that the child has some form of fecal impaction, either on exam um, or x-ray, then I usually do something to basically clean out the colon, to, to, to evacuate the colon. And, there, and there's sort of two ways to do that. One is you can give them a bunch of stuff to drink. And we typically use Miralax just because kids, most kids are willing to drink it. You, you could do a ton of milk and magnesia. There are lots of different choices, but Miralax tends, you know, the miracle of Miralax is that it's generally tasteless and odorless. And so kids take it. It's not any better than any of the other osmotic stool softeners milk and magnesia works. It's just that most kids don't like it. So clean them out. You can do that either from above 
or in some cases we do it from below. We do that a lot less than we used to because enemas are traumatic to all involved, but enemas work and they're very safe. So several enemas. And then once you've got them empty, so the colon is empty, all the hard stool is out, then you need to start some form of therapy so that the child is pooping hopefully every day, at least every other day, soft and without pain. And that almost always requires some sort of osmotic stool softener. And the two we use most often these days are Miralax or polyethylene glycol um, or milk of magnesia. And I explained to families, these are both osmotic agents. So, you know, polyethylene glycol is a large inert molecule, doesn't get digested, stays in the bowel because it stays in the bowel, keeps water with it. There's more water in the bowel, there's more water in the stool and the stool is softer. So the only side effect of too much is diarrhea. And if that happens, you back off. Um, and the studies that have looked at it, I know there's some people who are worried about it, but the studies that have looked at it have not demonstrated more polyethylene glycol in the bloodstream of kids on chronic Miralax than in the background population. There was actually a study out of Columbus, Ohio, where actually the levels of polyethylene glycol in the blood were higher in the kids who were not on Miralax than in the kids who were, suggesting there's polyethylene glycol in the water supply, which is a whole nother issue. Um, but so either Miralax or something like that, or milk of magnesia, but they have to drink a bunch because both of these things work by keeping water in the bowel and then adjust the dose of the Miralax up or milk of magnesia up or down. So the kid's passing soft, but not watery stools, hopefully every day, at least every other day, like I said, most importantly, without pain. Um, and then once you're there, leave things alone for a period of a minimum of two to three months, if not six to 12 months, depending on the child's age and behaviors. And you need to go a number of months without the kid having pain. And if that's a little kid, as we talked about, I usually say that means that the kid poops and you don't know it until you smell it, because that means they're not afraid and it doesn't hurt. If they're still stiffening and screaming and tensing or hiding in the corner before they poop, they're still afraid it's gonna hurt. And so as soon as you back off, you're gonna end up where you started. Um, and, and then for a fair number of little kids, I'll often, I'll often use a combination of an osmotic agent, be it, again, polyethylene glycol or milk magnesia, plus a little bit of senna. Um, and I typically use chocolate X-lax squares because most kids like it, but you can certainly use X-lax um, I mean, senna syrup, or you can do senna tea or whatever families want to use. And I find that the combination of a purely osmotic agent plus something that also softens the stool as Senna does, but also makes the intestine squeeze, tends to help the families get to that middle place where the poops are soft, but not watery. Um, I also find that if you split the dose, so if you think about how osmotic agents work by keeping water in the bowel, if, if you give them a smaller dose more often, you're keeping water in the bowel continuously, so you have a greater chance of getting to that place of soft but not watery stool. So at the minimum, I give it to them twice a day in smaller doses, and then we sort of adjust the dose. So that's my brief speech. Yeah, yeah. No, it's perfect because I think that gets to the answers of help. One, the, yeah, I like you putting in the polyethylene glycol stuff because anytime you say a name like polyethylene glycol, it sounds like yeah. something that goes in your car and yeah. it freaks people out. So to give the news to use, we tend to use lactulose a good bit yeah. um, and taste-wise it works and kids yeah. use it. Uh, you know, milk of magnesia is another great one. And to your point, you know, magnesium is something we add in to the diet of these kids too, uh, right. hopefully through foods, but even as supplements, because magnesium just has such a beneficial effect on many cellular pathways, including GI transit. So, so I appreciate that part, Steve. So, yeah, and, I, and lactu I, lactulose is perfectly fine. It does taste good. The problem is, you know, it, it's an it's an undigestible sugar, so it's fermented. So, gas is a very common side effect. Right. So, particularly in the little squirts who are colicky. Uh, I worry that 
you're, you're trading one problem for another. So you yeah, just sort of yeah. balance that out. Yep, for sure. So now let's segue. We're about halfway through here. I want to start talking about the, the 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 elephant in the room in our clinic, which is this this world of milk protein intolerance. I'm going to open it up with sort of the we when I first started at you know Salisbury Peds 22 years ago, these kids would roll into our office colicky, refluxy, eczematous, and we sort of had no at that point no real clue that this was you know, mediated by uh, an, an immune reaction to a food source. So we would come and say, hey, your kid's got colic. This is what's going on. It's a sort of a gut brain interface issue. We're not really sure it'll get better. And then somewhere around the, you know, around the early 2000s, it became more clear that this was some form of intolerance to the casein protein and dairy. And you switch these kids to a different formula, starting with soy first. And 40% of them don't tolerate that switch and you end up on a hydrolyzed formula and the children do better. And so the to me, the big question I want to ask and, and one, the pathophysiology of the why, do we know why we're seeing so much more of this? Because it's definitely, to me, it seems like we're seeing a lot more, not an insignificant amount. And then why are we also now starting to see corn solid irritation, right? Because we're seeing kids now that tolerate the ready to feed elemental, but not the powder. Yeah. So um, a lot of questions. Yeah. So, well, so, you know, again, I think it's sort of like constipation. I'm not, I'm not sure that we're seeing more of it. We just may be more aware of it. Um, it it's hard to know. Um, when I think about, when I think about pr milk protein sensitivity or intolerance, so I, I think about that. So that's an immune, you know, my definition of this is an immune mediated response to ingested proteins. And typically we think about cow's milk proteins, but it, as you've alluded to, it can be damn near anything. And kids with FPIs, which is the most extreme force form of this, you know, that oats is, and rice are actually relatively common triggers, which doesn't make a lick of sense in the, in the traditional way we feed babies. Um, so I think about three clinical syndromes with some overlap. So the first, which is probably the most common, is, is colitis or proctitis. So those kids have a little bit of inflammation in their distal bowel, some more than others. And the most typical presentation is blood streaked in the stool with mucus, often with some colicky symptoms. Um, and quite honestly, we don't know the prevalence of that. Um, we, because we know that if you, if you screen the stools of two-month-old babies, 20% of them have blood in it. Um, now, and if you track those kids out, if they're not symptomatic, they're all fine at a year. So, so my guess is the prevalence of that disorder is very high. And the natural history of colitis or proctitis is it goes away no matter what we do. So you can make the blood and the mucus better by taking out potentially offending antigens, typically cow's milk, sometimes soy, although you may have to be more extreme and some moms end up eating nothing but lentils. Um, and I worry the treatment there is worse than the problem we're treating. But if you look at babies who are otherwise without symptoms and moms who are willing to live with a little blood in the stool and they keep on eating whatever they want, at a year, the baby still outgrows the problem. So you're treating the symptom, not the problem. And the natural history is that this problem goes away. Um, now, whether that's associated with colic or not is hard to know, because that's a really hard study to do. In the studies that have recently looked at colic, 
um, th th there does appear to be an increased incidence of milk protein sensitivity, or at least some form of chronic inflammatory process going on in the GI tract. And the best studies, there are only a handful of them, look at a marker called calprotectin, which is a calcium binding protein released by both enterocytes, but mostly neutrophils. Um, and unlike lactoferrin, which we often use to measure inflammation in the bowel, there's no calprotectin in breast milk. So, so, so if there's calprotectin in the baby's stool, that's not coming from breast milk. So in a couple of studies, if you look at, at the level of calprotectin, it's higher in colicky babies as a group than it is in babies who are not colicky, regardless of whether they're breastfed or formula fed. So it does suggest there may be some element of milk protein or food protein induced inflammation. There's at least some inflammation in the bowel. Um, now we don't have good long-term studies to know what all that means, but it goes back to the stuff you and I have talked about already. I suspect there's a difference in flora and there's some data to support that, although not as much data as we'd like. And, and so the question becomes why, why, if the baby's exclusively breastfed in the first few months of life, why would hit one baby's flora be different than another? And there are lots of potential answers. We know that 30% of all women in the United States gets peripartum antibiotics because of group B strep prophylaxis. And maybe that plays a role. Now I'm not arguing we shouldn't give prophylaxis because I'd rather the baby have milk protein colitis than die from group B strep, but the law of unintended consequences here. So that's the most mild form. The natural history is it goes away. As best we can tell, there's no long-term consequences. Those babies aren't at greater risk for other things down the road as best we can tell, although we don't have great data. Um, and then the most severe form is FPIs, food protein-induced enterocolitis syndrome. And, and that's almost an anaphylactoid reaction to, to ingestion you know, of, of offending antigens. Again, classically cow's milk, but it can be anything. And those kids will ingest the milk, have horrible vomiting, voluminous diarrhea that's sometimes bloody and look like they're in shock, um, but they get better very quickly as soon as you stop feeding them. Um, and it's unclear whether the prevalence of that is rising, but we think it probably is. Um, and, and I do worry about the tolerance process we talked about um, that if we don't expose babies to all the critical foods early in life, then they're much more greater to have reactions later, but I don't know that. Um, and then there's a group in the middle that I, at least I call them in the middle, which is enteropathy, which is actually the rarest, um, but it's just like celiac disease. You, you get villus atrophy um, and malabsorption, but the offending antigen is not gluten. It's typically cow's milk, one of the caseins, all, although it can be whey protein, it can be anything. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I don't know what we're doing, but I do worry <laughs> that 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 it, that we're screwing up the flora early in life, um, and, and and it may be mom's flora that's the problem because you know the seeding of the baby's flora is mom's flora. As you know, most babies are born vaginally and they're born face down, and so they get inoculated with mom's fecal flora as they come through the the birth canal. And so if we screw up mom's flora early we may screw up baby's flora and change this whole process. And, and you know, anecdotally, I've seen a number of kids in the NICU who've, who, who've never been fed and the first time they eat, they have FPIs. And so, so I, I wonder whether, you know, all the, which they needed and the, you know, they get all the antibiotics in the NICU because they needed them because they had rule out sepsis and all this other stuff, but we've totally changed that whole tolerization process. Yeah, and I think- speech and I don't know the answer. Well, and I, and I think to your point, some of this data is starting to come and we, we have a long way to go. I, I, the California company 
um, evolved biosciences had done a bunch of research on Bifidobacter longum subspecies infantis and how they found it in, in, in uh, um, developing countries that, that B. infantis species is, is much more prevalent than in westernized countries. And then when they went and did a proof of concept study looking at the immunologic outcome of giving back the B. infantis, that there was a huge increase in tolerogenic mechanisms through upregulation of certain cytokines, including IL-10 and other stuff. But I think the bigger part was that it turns out that this B. infantis has all 19 genes for the enzymes involved in HMO uh, uh, degradation. Yeah. And so that may be a piece of it too. And I'm curious to watch their data evolve and can they, and that the hard part to your point is how can we prove how much, if we don't even know the incidence of MPI, right. how do we prove that it's reducing it? So yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I think you could, I think you might could do, you know, right now we use calprotectin as our marker. I think you could use calprotectin as a crude screen, recognizing there are lots of reasons it could be elevated, but if you did enough of them, you might mark that. At least, you know, there's no, there's less inflammation in the bowel for whatever reason. And yeah, they have I, done know. that, and they did show yeah. some decrease in calprotectin yeah. as, as a proof of concept, but I think they need to go a little farther. But it's the first probiotic that I've seen that has data published in a way that looks like a pharmaceutical, like it was done the right way, not like yeah. a lot of these willy-nilly probiotics out there. So I'm really interested to watch, and I'm starting to use it in, in breastfed babies to see the outcome benefits, and I'm so far, I've been pretty pleased. Yeah, I, you know, so if you... So I love to talk about this, you know, so the, so, so um, the reason there are, if you think from an evolutionary perspective, because, because the, the amount of calories you get from that, that you get from the, the human milk oligosaccharides is trivial. So, so it's not a nu nutrient in the traditional sense of providing nutrition for growth. So the only reason that, they, that they're there is as prebiotics, right? And so if, if you look at the flora of babies who are fed breast milk or any lactose containing milk for that matter, so it can be formula versus babies who are fed lactose free milks, it's very different. Right. And, and the only place in nature that lactose exists is in mammalian milk, which right. is an oxymoron because milk is mammalian. So you can't milk a soybean, it's soy formula, <laughs> right? And it's almond formula, it's not milk but we can call it whatever we want. Um, and, and there's lactose in all mammalian milks, right. except for sea lions and sea lion-like animals. And, and the, hypo the, hy the hypothesis for that is that sea lions are different than most other mammals. Mammals nurse repeatedly over a long period of time and then ultimately wean. Sea lions are born, get one milk feed, and then dive into the ocean to get their first fish feed. So all basically everything in sea lion milk is fat because they need the energy to get to that first fish feed. So the hypothesis as to why there's lactose in all mammalian milks otherwise is because it's a prebiotic. Be because if you look at the gut flora of lactose contained, animals fed lactose, it's very different than not. And it's a bunch of bifidobacter and lactobacillus and other stuff. And the single greatest evolutionary pressure for all of us is infection. So, so in a number of animal studies, and there are actually some human studies and uh, old human studies, if they're fed lactose containing milk versus not, and you challenge them with salmonella or shigella, it takes several orders of magnitude more organisms to get the animals who are fed lactose containing milk to get sick than those who aren't. So it's all about infection and inflammation and you know we're screwing some of that stuff up and sometimes we don't have any choice we trade one problem for another because again i don't want a bunch of babies to die from groupie strep but if we could figure out other ways 
to protect them without potentially messing up mom's flora, that would probably be a good thing. So ironically, it's interesting that you say that because one of my great friends locally who has since retired, a gastroenterologist named Jim Sandberg, and I had long conversations about this over the years when he would come to my office. And, and one of the things I found fascinating was to your point from the gastroenterologic perspective, by six to 12 months, a lot of these kids are no longer colitis based. They're no longer having the symptoms that we see of as milk protein intolerance from a gastrointestinal perspective. But a subset of these kids, and it's not an insignificant subset, start to have problems with chronic congestion of the mucus respiratory pathway. So ears get filled with fluid, sinuses are draining, uh, wheezing on, exam on occasion, much less common, but so we're all of a sudden, these kids are getting more ear infections and more sinus infections. And so by definition, now they're starting to get antibiotic exposure again, which I think further disrupts the microbiome and, and promotes dysbiosis. And I'm amazed at how many of these kids, you get them off milk again, do a, just do an elimination diet for a month, watch what happens. The mom's like, oh, the congestion's gone. Then you say, okay, let's see what happens over six months. And they don't get sick again. They stop having antibiotic exposure for a period of time. Usually by three, four, five years of age, they're able to tolerate milk again. So it seems like there's almost a graded elimination of the symptomatology, starting with the GI tract, going up towards respiratory, and eventually some of them even have eczema on skin. And I'm not quite sure why that is, because immunologically, you know, and I know, IgE is not there in most of right. these kids. Well, IgG and IgG4 don't prove anything because they're positive in some kids and, and right. associated, but negative, positive in some kids and not associated. So I have no idea what's going there other than the diagnostic elimination challenge removes disease risk because you're getting rid of the mucus layer in the respiratory tract that still persists despite the mucus layer and the GI tract disappearing. Yeah, you know, the, you know, historically we sort of thought about the GI tract as the first part of this, but there's some more recent data to suggest that actually the skin, you think about it, they're the two biggest barriers in the body, right? right. And, so, and so there's actually some really amazing data that, uh, that suggests that the atopic march is probably more driven by skin breakdown and sensitization through the skin rather than through the GI tract. And so there, there's some preliminary data suggesting that if you're really aggressive in the management of eczema early, you substantially decrease the risk of the atopic march later, including GI sensitization. So it may be going the other way. Yeah. We historically think about the GI sensitization, but it may be skin. And so they're getting exposed to those proteins through their skin and there's breakdown in the skin. And then they get more global immunosensitization. So, it, so, you know, everything's more complicated than we want it to be. Um, Have you seen any research that's giving us any biomarkers to understand this stuff? Because I, 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 I sit in frustration constantly reading literature, even on FPIs. We have no yeah. idea what the immunologic mediation is of this process. Right. There are no. some kids that are IgE positive and then it's okay. You know, it looks like it's true allergy, but then the rest of it's this nebulous world of misunderstanding. If we know it's immunologic, it has to be. It's right. inflammatory. That's right. It's not, but it's not, you know, so that as you already alluded to, you know, the problem with doing RAS tests or, or skin tests is that just indicates sensitization. Right. Um, that doesn't indicate that that's the trigger of their problem. And so, you know, Hugh Sampson's used to do a lot of this, you know, where they do double blind food challenges and, and which is really the only way right now to prove any of this stuff. And, and, it, you know, only 5% of the people who think they're food allergic really have a reaction to the food when it's given blindly. Um, so so it, it's not usually IgE mediated, it's right. something else. And, 
no, I'm not smart enough to answer that question. Well, you know, because I always look at the celiac data. Until we had a biomarker for celiac disease, we called it, you know, we didn't, it was an unknown. And then it had this, the name tropical sprue, which I think is comical now because we understand that you went to some tropical country, picked up some dysentery, and then somehow developed a sensitization yeah. and an irritation to the gluten proteins. And, and so I, I sort of think of it in that perspective, maybe we just don't have the biomarkers, but they exist, they're somewhere. Oh. And, and elimination rechallenges as long as they're not IgE mediated are totally reasonable as a, yeah. as a point of care therapy. Right, well, and, and again, in the, in the end, what you're trying to do is make the patient feel better. And so right. if you're not doing harm, um, sometimes that's the best answer. I mean, you know, so celiac disease is a great example. So, so you know, there are three things that have to happen with celiac disease. You got to carry the right HLA haplotypes. That's HLA DQ2 and DQ8. Depending right. on the study you look at, 30 to 40% of the population carry those HLA haplotypes. Right. So that means 30 to 40% of the population are at risk for celiac disease. And then you got to eat gluten, which almost everybody in our culture at least starts doing. But that means 40% of the population are at risk. If you look over a lifetime, at most, 5 to 7% of those people will develop celiac disease, which means that 90 to 95% of people at risk never develop the disease. So right. there's got to be some other trigger. And as you've alluded to, it's probably often an infection. So you turn on the immune system in a certain way in a susceptible host, and then the immune system doesn't turn off. Um, and I suspect that, th that that's gonna be true with a lot of diseases, that, that you carry a susceptibility and then you have a certain trigger event. You may have polymorphisms in other genes, probably immune regulatory genes that put you at greater risk. And so it's, it's never as simple as we want it to be. It's sort of like IBD, um, you know, Crohn's disease is not gonna be a single disease. Right. It's multiple ways to get to the same end. Um, and there's a lot of compelling epidemiologic data to suggest that it's a chronic infection. And, right. you know, part of the problem with all this stuff is that our historical way of detecting infections is Koch's postulates, right? So you identify an organism in a, in a person who's sick, strep, okay? And then when they're not sick, they don't have strep anymore. And then you take strep and you inoculate it in a healthy person and they get sick and you say, aha, strep causes pharyngitis but COVID's a great example. There are a bunch of people who carry COVID and never get sick. The bug right. is the same, the host right. is different. Right. And so how do we determine if you carry a bug and I carry a bug and you're sick and I'm not, how do we know that that bug isn't causing your symptoms? That's really hard. <laughs> but I believe Crohn's disease in some cases is a chronic saprophytic infection, right. but in, in a susceptible host. Yeah, and I think over time, we're going to need machine learning to help us answer some yeah. of these questions when we get That's to that right. point. But even looking at Crohn's, I look at that again, it's like another example of biomarkers not being there to help us understand. When you look at Susskind's work out of Seattle, you know, eight yeah. of 10 patients on a car specific carbohydrate diet improved, right? So food has to be a trigger for this to well, some well, extent. Well, yeah, so if you look at their data carefully, the inflammatory mark, they get symptomatically better, which is important, right? but they don't all get mucosal healing. And, and so, you know, what you eat influences what comes out the other end. So you put someone on a, on a very restricted diet that doesn't have much fiber um, and doesn't get fermented, then you don't deliver as much stuff to the distal bowel, which may be part of why they're having so many symptoms. But that's, that doesn't prove that that's the cause of their disease. It just right. suggests we're improving the inflammatory process downstream. And again, right. that's important. You wanna make people better. But I don't think that proves that's the cause. And, I, and so, I, you know, we're going to quote our, you know, our, our 
our mentor, Frank Salisbury, you know, part of the problem with all this stuff is that, you know, a lot of the things we're measuring, it's like you're sitting on the first floor looking at the sewage coming out of a 10th floor apartment and trying to figure out what they ate for dinner. Right. And, and that there, there are just way too many variables. So you got to catch these people much earlier. Yeah, which is the biggest problem with nutrition science to begin with. Controlling yeah. the variables is next to impossible. So we try yeah. and extrapolate from there. And again, I think That's to right. your point, for me, it's the just, simple answer is always, how do I make the patient feel better? Because That's in the right. end run, if they feel better, they're less mentally stressed, which then is going to loop back to That's reduce correct. disease too, because mental disease or mental stress around your own illness is a big, I mean, talk about Crohn's. I mean, that'll worsen disease in a heartbeat. So I am a big fan of, of mental stress reduction. So we don't have a lot of time left, Steve. So I yeah. just want to ask a couple more questions quick one. So do sure. you use any other adjunctive therapy in, in these, you know, kids that have milk protein intolerance early on? Do you do any added fibers, probiotics, zinc, yeah. anything for enterocyte healing? Yeah. So, so again, we talked about this earlier. I'm a big believer in early introduction of solids. So I, te I tend to, and I, and I like fire. Now, usually this is what you start with. I mean, I know historically we tend to give kids rice cereal first, but rice cereal tastes like cardboard. So I usually start, I usually start with veggies and I usually start with yellow veggies because they tend to be sweet. Most babies like them. I've never met a baby who didn't like sweet potatoes. So sweet potatoes and squash. So I start those things early. Um, I think they help for colic. I think they help. I think they serve as both a prebiotic, but also as a fiber that helps gut function. So there's very little risk. I'll also sometimes use insoluble fiber. So Metamucil, which is psyllium seed husk. So, you know, the difference between soluble and insoluble fiber. Um, um, so I use those things. And then there's, you know, reasonably good evidence that the, the probiotic lactobacillus ruteri, so the BioGaia pe people did the first studies and they were pretty well done. And a number of studies have reproduced it can be very helpful with colic. And there's a little bit of evidence that may decrease the inflammatory process. And there's no evidence there of any harm. So I'm fine doing those things. I agree with you. You know, one of, when people ask me about probiotics, I, t I tend to focus on probiotics that have been reasonably well studied and are well standardized. So the two that I use most often are lactobacillus ruteri from BioGaia and, and also Culturel, just because it's very well standardized and been well studied. Right. Um, and I think all those things are very reasonable with very little risk. Right. And then do you, do you add anything like zinc or anything for, for enterocyte health or just try and get them to maximize quality yeah. foods that have zinc yeah. in? That, yeah, I, I usually don't do other dietary supplements. Uh, I, I don't think zinc's harmful, um, but I'm not sure it's really necessary. Okay, good. Well, so last question, Steve. I ask this of all my guests and I love to get the random answers. I didn't prep you. I don't know that this yeah. puts you on the spot, but that's okay. If you have a golden ticket, you're in Virginia, so you're close to the White House and you have the opportunity to hand one ticket in and you get to change one policy in the country, what would you ask for? I ask for, um, I tell every guest this, I ask for school food needs to be changed. I would want all nutrition based in school food, schools to be healthy. I'll, I'll, you know, we just had a grand rounds on this topic and the data that the school food isn't healthy is actually pretty weak. So so um, I, I, I think, um, it's, I hadn't thought about this till you brought this up. I'm not sure I would have answered it this way now before, but I, I, I think a unified program to assure that people can get access to good food um, and don't have food insecurity across the entire nation. Um, so that, you know, the data about the number of people with food insecurity is astonishing. Yep. Um, and and um, so I think if we, and you know, part of the problem with all this is there are actually en enormous numbers of federal and state programs 
but they're not well coordinated. And so like so many other things in our, in our world, if you don't know it's there, you can't find it. <laughs> so yeah. if we had a unified program to deal with all those issues, we probably would save money and be able to deliver more services. <laughs> Well, and I look at that as the headwaters of disease again. If we treat people with healthy uh, precursors to a healthy um, you know, corpus, then the diseases don't show up and we save a boatload more money on the back end because that's where all the expenses are going anyway. It's again, we oh, just yeah. have this, we just have this long view that's that's broken. All we care about is a short view. Even insurance companies could care very well, little that, about yeah. the long term. So so well, so I, you know, not to get into a political discussion, but I, you know, if it, I think you can argue lots about whether the government does a better job of delivering healthcare versus private insurers. But I think the big issue is that the government would have the long view and insurers don't. So if you look at insurance data, most people change insurance companies every three to five years, Correct. which means they have no reason to invest in something that's going to help you 20 years down the road. That's not in their best interest to make money. So yep. if someone worries about what it's going to do to you 30 years from now, that's what you want. And yep. Insurance companies are in it to make money, no matter what they say. That's what their primary function is. And they don't care about what happens to us 30 years down the road because yeah, we're not going to be paying them. In yeah, it's an unfortunate reality, but that is yeah. the truth. And, you know, the devil's in the details of, of right. making the best decision for the patient. And thank God right. that you and I chose a field where we get to make that decision every day, regardless of the stupidity of the business model, which That's is right. very bad. <laughs> That's right. But, yes, you couldn't design a more stupid system if you tried. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's right. it's quite incredible on a daily basis. I wonder even just the recent changes now with, uh, you know, the EMR stuff is just maddening. But, you know, it's a steps in different directions and whatever I. I'm looking forward to the day that the computers become an asset to us in patient care, where I can data mine and use that right. stuff for the benefit of the patient instead of the benefit of the insurer and the and the Correct. payer. <laughs> well, you already alluded to this, Chris. You know, my the, my dream is is big data. Well, well, because you know part of the problem is is we can't identify the patterns if we don't see them. Right. So so big data and AI can search for patterns for us if we collect the data in ways. That, that they can see it. And so I think ultimately that's how, how this is gonna play out is there are a bunch of patterns out there for these disorders that we don't know because we can't see them. Right. And once they become apparent, then we can start delving in more deeply into how, how did this happen? Why did this happen? What do we do about it? Well, and, and even in COVID, it started to show. I mean, yeah. some of the machine learning figured out the the issues around clotting. And I know there was right. some some rake, really good data looking at why random healthy people, I mean, comorbid disease tended to be the biggest player, 97 plus percent of all deaths. But there were these random 30-year-olds who were perfectly healthy right. dropping dead. And it turns out they're missing certain innate right. immune system capabilities of seeing the virus, toll like receptor seven, others. So that right. machine learning is already coming to play, but it's not coming to play for me yet. And I'm ready to see it in my <laughs> clinic. And that's what I'm hoping for because then it's patient care change. It's going to be beautiful. But, that's exactly right. I agree with you. That's the, that's, that's the power of the EHR. We just need to redirect so that that's, that's the output we get because that's really where it's going to help us. Well, Steve, I appreciate your time, your hour, and as always, your mentorship. You have been the, one of the best teachers of my entire existence. And oh, thank you. for that, I am grateful for your hour. I'm grateful. And I'm just you know, all my patients and, and other providers that listen to this podcast now get to learn from somebody that I hold on a pedestal very high. Well, I'm only human, but thank you. <laughs> uh, well, say say hi to say hi to the boss for me. Tell her right. I said hello, and I right. hope uh, hope her world of nutrition, everything else she's working in, stays solvent and beautiful. Thanks, thanks, man. It's great to see you. Yeah, you too, Steve. Well, there you go. A master class in the understandings of root cause analysis for constipation and children, 
and also a deeper dive into the world of cow milk intolerance. For me, I think the key takeaways from his discussion are the fact that in children, pain and the difficulty in passing a hard or large stool is the main driver of the chronic dysfunction that underlies constipation. The diet, the dairy association possibilities, the lack of fiber, the lack of water, the lack of exercise, all these things are pieces of the acute problem and chronic problem, but the withholding of stool, the pain of stool, the not wanting to defecate in school, all of these upstream reasons are, to me, the major play behind why some children can't get constipation under control. And that's because, as Dr. Borowitz stated clearly, the intestine is not going to function well when it's constantly dilated. So it takes quite a long time to get there. So it's going to take quite a long time to undo the damage. And as he stated very clearly, six to 12 months may be necessary to keep the colon uh, empty, at least the, the, the distal in large intestine, up until the point to that the, the stool is able to pass soft for a long period of time, the, the structure of the colon shrinks back down to a normal size for a normal peristaltic function, which is the way it's supposed to be. So the better part of our time spent should be helping parents understand the fact that keeping the bowels empty remains the main key. Stopping pain, removing the child's need to want to hide or stand in the corner or do anything they can to not have to deal with the pain that exists. Pain remains one of the greatest teachers for humans if we listen to it. You get kicked in the shins and you have an injury there. The pain signal is telling you to take it easy on that leg until the healing occurs. And the same goes for the bowels or any other part of our body. So understanding the realities of why a pain signal occurs and why stool withholding occurs is critical to understanding. So for all the parents and clinicians out there, focus the master part of your attention on you know, really making sure that the child is not in pain, not struggling to defecate, not having large stools. And so utilize the tools that are going to help that, whether it's a laxative, as discussed, Miralax, Senna, uh, Lactulose, uh, whatever it is that you like to use, Trafala. There are lots and lots of options here, whatever works best for you. But the key is chronicity of use, six months or longer until the child feels better. Now, of course, while this is going on, I'm a huge fan of adding massive amounts of fiber to the diet as possible, increasing water intake, movement, um, adequate sleep, all the other lifestyle factors that help keep stress and other uh, biological functions in the proper order. So focus on those as well. I do still continue to try dairy-free diets in children with constipation to see if there is an adjunctive help there. If it is, great. If it isn't, so be it. All good. So moving over to the second part of the discussion with cow milk protein intolerance, as we discussed, there is some disagreement and also some unknowns within the literature, and that's perfectly fine. As we go through life, I think the key with any dietary choice or elimination diet is, one, what's the downstream effect of not having that food in your system? Is there a problem not having a certain food type, right? So if taking dairy out is net negative to health, then it's probably not a good idea, but I'm not convinced that dairy is a net positive. I think that after a year of age, if a child consumes a high-quality anti-inflammatory diet, 
then dairy may not be a major piece of that, especially if there's a cow milk protein intolerance going on, whether that is chronic eczema that's mediated by the dairy uh, consumption, whether that's chronic congestion and secondary ear infections, whether that's just sinomucosal disease. All these things are possible. If you remove the food for a period of time and there's no change in symptoms, then it's clearly not associated. So add the food back in and that's totally fine. So for me, cow milk protein intolerance and the other diseases on either side, whether it's FPIs or true cow milk allergy, all need to be ferried out by your provider to decide which part of the spectrum you're on and if an elimination diet is safe and and all the other unsundry pieces that go along with this. And finally, when it comes to the microbiome, I think there's a lot more to learn here. Um, For me, as stated, I like Avivo. Uh, Dr. Borowitz stated clearly he likes Culturel and BioGaia. All three products are well-studied. I think it depends on the situation you're in and what your choices are. Again, I highly encourage you to discuss these things with your provider. But, you know, when when you take the sum total of this whole discussion, I think it's very clear, yet again, that the main thrust of Dr. Borowitz and and my discussion is really working on the chronicity of a problem, trying to find all the antecedent upstream risks that are keeping the disease at play, and then removing them for a period of time sufficient to reverse the process, which can be long. So don't give up too early. Otherwise, you're going to set yourself back right back to the beginning. You have to start all over again. These are the critical pieces of the discussion. And so with that... I hope you enjoyed my conversation with one of my favorite teachers, Dr. Steve Borowitz, and I appreciate everyone's time today listening, and as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or health care professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of a provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.